Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm Bruce McCurdy of the Edmonton Journal's Cult of Hockey, and I'm here tonight with my colleague, Kurt Levins. Hello, Kurt. Howdy, Bruce. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well enough, thank you. Given that I'm in Edmonton, or St. Albert, Alberta, and not Croatia, like uh, David Staples, who usually is the headmaster of our podcast, he's uh, having a nice vacation. Uh, we're taking a ferry down the, I think the Danube, and, and uh, doing a 60 to 100 kilometer cycle every day and then returning to the ferry which is just cruise down river in the same amount of time to pick them up doesn't that sound uh i mean i'd want an e-bike to do that mind you but uh i was just gonna say the trip <laughs> sounds fabulous the bike doesn't sound like holiday but <laughs> to each his own right <laughs> yeah anyway so uh thanks for thanks for filling in tonight we've got uh uh, it's been a little while since we we did one. I think we did one on Sunday just before uh, David left <clears throat> the country. So uh, that's what 10, 11 days ago now. And we had a few things come down the pike in that time, and we're going to talk about four of them. Uh, basically, uh, some residual from the Penticton tournament, uh, some uh, uh, <clears throat> news from the Oilers Hall of Fame, uh, lines and pairings from today's camp. And also today's uh, extraordinary news from the Oilers of the hiring of Michael Parcati as the new director of data and analytics. So that does not sound like the sort of title that uh, the video and coaching analytics guy that they just hired had, which obviously he has some analytics in his work, but other stuff to do as well. Michael is all about analytics and uh, uh, this is a, a major hire by the Oilers filling a, uh, uh, an area of the organizational depth chart that was lacking and uh, it's high time that they brought in a high-powered uh, number cruncher and analyst, more to the point, of what the numbers actually mean and communicator to other uh, less mathematically inclined people, which you'll find from time to time in hockey, who need to know what the numbers mean, even if they don't necessarily get all the ins and outs of it, right? I mean, I don't understand what goes on in the engine of my car, but I do know uh, <laughs> I do know where the gas tank is and where to point the steering wheel and, and who to ask when I'm in trouble. And uh, now they've got someone in that spot in Mike Parcati, a gentleman who I happen to know personally and consider a friend, and I'm thrilled for him and, and uh, uh, pretty pleased with uh, the situation in general because this has been, a to me, a glaring need for a few years. The orders have been falling behind in this department and I think one thing you and I are going to agree on, Kurt, and I'll let you go right away after this, is that this is one piece of the bigger puzzle. It's not the be-all and end-all only answer to it. But at the same time, if you don't got it, you you don't have something that other teams do have. And I think the, the Oilers have been sort of nibbling around the edges, but they haven't really ever had a, a, a point person and now, arguably, they have two or even three in the persons of uh, Jeff Jackson, who made the hire after promising to do so. And, of course, Brad Holland, who's uh, who's been uh, uh, pointing the team somewhat in that direction since he came on board a while back. So it's uh, uh, full steam ahead in the analytics uh, area for the Oilers in 2023, long overdue. 
Yeah, there's two main things that, that I like about the hire. Um, one is from the standpoint of, we'll leave no stone unturned in your effort mm -hmm. to win a Stanley Cup, right? right? Uh, whether you're for or against analytics, uh, I think surely you can agree that having that covered by someone more than capable, uh, at least to the extent of the, the teams that you're competing against is smart, right? Mm -hmm. So, so uh, point number one. Point number two, what I really like, and I don't know Michael personally uh, at all like you do, but what I like about his resume is that here's a guy who has plied his trade uh, in a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, <laughs> it's one thing to do these calculations in your basement and, you know, come up right. with, with summa summations. It's quite another thing to, to apply it uh, to a global industry like he has been um, mm -hmm. in his work with, with, with Suncor Energy. Um, and so I really like his CV and I like the idea that the Oilers are more or less now on even playing field with the average NHL franchise. I think we can probably agree there's a number of franchises that are ahead of Edmonton in this respect oh, well, and that there's some catching up to do. Yeah. But, uh, but now that you've jumped into the, jumped into the pool, uh, you can swim. Right. So uh, from those two aspects, I really like it. And I'll throw in, I mentioned this in the article that I posted at the Cult of Hockey today, too. The fact that you can fill this slot with a hometown boy, if I can call Michael a boy, you know what I mean? Yes. Um, that's kind of that's kind of the cherry on top. That's right. Nice. How 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 perfect is that to have someone that's uh, that's a fan of the club that's that's an Albertan? Uh, I, I think that's not the be all and the end ball, but it sure is a plus. Comes from the oil and gas industry, you know, uh, and I'll speak to uh, uh, 10 years ago now uh, when under the uh, auspices of uh, Steve Tambellini and at that time, uh, President of Hockey Operations, Kevin Lowe, uh, the Oilers started up uh, what was called the Oilers Analytics Working Group. And this is when analytics was still sort of sort of just getting a foothold in hockey. It had been around in baseball for a while. Of course, baseball has always had the advantage in, uh, you know, mammoth statistical database and ability to, you know, an entire set of numbers to, to work with. Hockey as a flow game is a lot harder to uh, pin down who exactly is doing what at what moment in time. Uh, uh, so it was a little bit later, but the Oilers did make this uh, early attempt and they hired some... Uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say hired, but they collected a group of volunteers from around town, some from the university, some from computer sciences, uh, uh, some with a hockey background. Uh, I was uh, honored to be part of that myself, the Oilers Analytics Working Group in the early 2010s. Uh, and it, it was, it was uh, uh, shall we say, a nascent uh, group, and there was a lot of good ideas in there. Uh, I'm not sure we ever sort of had the, the single-minded sense of direction that you would have with a you know a, a professional in uh, in the field uh, running the show, and you know, but uh, we did come up with some good stuff. And at, at the time, I mean, uh, uh, I specifically remember, and you quoted my comment to you about this in your post about uh, uh, Kevin Lowe. There was a time that Discovery Channel came in and did a little television feature on on hockey analytics for you know science and hockey and uh kevin lowe said for it he said what well, you know what we're not looking to completely 
drive our team by analytics, what we're looking for is a little edge here and there and everywhere we can find it, 1%, 2%, just around the fringes and the margins, uh, little ways that, that uh, uh, we can find to help us. And I'm sure that you'll agree, and any any hockey fan who's followed the sport closely for a number of years will agree at this point, 2% is a lot. You know, you, you, the teams are so close, the parity is so strong that you need to be turning over every rock, looking under every bush that you can uh, to look for advantages. And whether that's eyeball checking of players out in the middle of nowhere, or whether it's uh, uh, whether it's uh, analysis of uh, player statistical results uh, that might come available from other teams or ways that you might learn uh, other teams prefer to play that you might be able to exploit. There, there's any number of different ways that you can apply that. And sometimes, literally, you are just looking for that 1% or, or 2%. And uh, every once in a while, that's going to make a difference in a natural hockey game because they often come down to that 1%, you know, that, yeah. that little or tiny a series. difference. Or a series. Or a yeah. series, because I was going to mention, really, if we boil it right down to it, the Oilers lost to Vegas and the margins in that yes, series last year. Fair. It was a really close, you know, by a nip and by a tuck. And, mm -hmm. and if this step gives you that nip and that tuck in your column, Maybe you win that series. And I don't mean any disrespect to Vegas. They won that mm -hmm. series fair and square and they deserve yep. to win. Yep. But because it was so close, it is every little edge that made the difference. And so that's that's another reason why I think this makes good common sense as a step to take. Yeah, well, to me, <clears throat> long overdue. And when you, you, know, you hear of successful analytics departments in places like Tampa Bay and uh, Colorado that won cups, mm -hmm. Uh, in New Washington, Jersey, no? in Washington, where the uh, 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 the account formerly known as uh, Vic Ferrari, who was legendary <laughs> in the uh, uh, in the oilogosphere uh, a long time ago, <clears throat> Reverend Oilers fans uh, was was his baby, and uh, uh, he wound up. Tim Barnes wound up uh, in Washington, uh, winning a Stanley Cup there, and. Uh, We've seen a, a number of these uh, 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 fellows. I mean, Tyler Dello, who was briefly uh, with the Oilers, but got uh, let go by Peter Chiarelli and never replaced, which is, I think, the problem there. I mean, it's changing personnel is one thing, but dropping personnel and not replacing them, to me, was a mistake. Uh, by uh, by Shirelli and Tyler Dillon. He Dillo, had a now, few. <laughs> he, yeah, he did. He wound up. Tyler Tyler wound up in New Jersey where he where he uh, signed on four years ago. And you you look at what's going on in New Jersey now. And I'm not saying he deserves all the credit, but I'm saying that's a team that's a team that's leaving no stone unturned. Yep. And they are coming on gangbusters. And same in Carolina where Eric Tulski uh, went from. A blogger on the internet uh, to being hired by uh, the Hurricanes to now being an assistant general manager of the Hurricanes and being on the short list, I think, of a few teams that will next be looking for a GM. I, I fully expect to see Eric wind up in a GM's chair uh, at some point with an analytics background. And it's just, you know, part of the way the world is breaking. They're finding people from different places. I mean, the Oilers found Jeff Jackson from an agent's background. I mean, it doesn't always have to be the same path. And 
the trick is finding finding the, the right people who are you know smart people who are good communicators and almost whatever their background is you know what you want to do is cover off all the bases and uh, again i think that's uh, that's what's being done here yeah and at the end of the day you know what they say um it doesn't matter what the goal looked like it only matters that it goes in um mm -hmm. and for the naysayers of analytics if you if you money puck a cup who cares? <laughs> it's still uh -huh. a cop, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, another guy from the analytics community, Rob Volman, uh, I believe he's based in Calgary, but certainly part of. The, I attended some conferences with him, got to know him a little bit, and he wound up working for it. Still works for the Los Angeles Kings in the player procurement aspect, and that's a team that's done really well in that in that department, and. Again, I'm not going to say all the credit to him, but I will say credit to the Kings for covering all the bases. And yep. now I'm saying credit to the Edmonton Oilers for finally getting around to covering that base and finding a darn good man to do it. Eight of that. Kurt, today the team took to the ice. They did. How exciting. First, day of, first, real first day of training. First real day of training. First real day of training camp. They've only been doing captain skates for about two weeks. And, uh, of course, we've been distracted by the team in Penticton, which we'll talk about in a bit, the rookie team in Penticton. Uh, but this captain skate's been going on. But today they took to the ice and they ran the lines that several of us, including me, predicted. These first two lines, Kane with McDavid and Brown, Connor Brown, the uh, one newcomer to the to the scene, and R&H with Drysaddle and Hyman. As, as the top two lines. So let's just start, start right there at the top two lines and how how do you think those deployments are going to work and how do you anticipate they might morph and evolve over time? Well, I know some people think it should be Hyman with Kane and McDavid and Hyman and McDavid certainly do play well together, but probably like you, Bruce, I anticipated Connor Brown getting a look on the first line at mm -hmm. the start of camp, and I'm, I highly mm -hmm. doubt it'll be the only look he gets. Right. Um, I, I, I think if, if this configuration works, that's a hell of a top six. Yeah. Um, and what it does is it puts two really heavy players on each line, which I like. Kane and Brown on the first line, Drysaddle and Hyman on the second line. Um, I think ultimately they could be interchangeable. You could flip them around and maybe it won't make much difference. I almost guarantee you that that Jay Woodcroft will do that at some point. But I, I'm not surprised to see Connor Brown get the first shot. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we'll probably, some of that will be affected by his health. And, right. and certainly by all accounts, he looked good on day one. Uh, but as, as the competition starts to ramp up at training camp and mm -hmm. things get faster and more physical, we'll see how 100% he is. And, and you know, that, that may affect things. But, but out of the gate, I, I like you, probably was not surprised and was pleasantly pleased with, with the top six. I, I felt a little bit differently about the bottom six, but with the top six, I was I was right, right. in line. Okay, yeah, well, to me, like uh, Jason Greger was saying on Sports 1440 today, and he was saying that this idea of Brown and, and McDavid having chemistry from playing junior together nine years ago is ludicrous. Mm -hmm. And I think more, I mean, it can't hurt. 
but it's not like they're going to have something not they're not going to suddenly be the sedines out there you know where you're dealing with three sedines right you're dealing with henrik daniel and the two of them together and the magic that they created it's nothing like that i do think that's a very comfortable landing spot for connor brown to begin his time with the Oilers to play with directly with a guy that he's familiar with and i mean first day of training camp he, you know he could play until December with that line. They could mix them up, and after that, you know, what yep. really matters is where they're going to be in April 15th, not uh, September 21st. <clears throat> but putting Brown there and sort of, sort of, giving him a soft landing, and <clears throat> he, I mean, he does stand out as the uh, the cheapest forward in the top six at $775,000, and the other guys are all over five million. Of course, the other shoe. I was going to say the other penny drops next year on Brown, but it's actually this year's a penny, next year's a nickel. Because yep. he's going to get 80% of his contract paid next year. But the gamble is that he performs at a low price this year. And the reports that I've, I'm getting, and certainly uh, what I've seen of the player, uh, is one of his comparables is, in fact, Zach Hyman. Yes. Uh, with whom they played together in Toronto <clears throat> on uh one of the possibly the finest group of rookies I've ever seen at a single position on any <laughs> NHL team. The year that they broke in uh, Hyman and Brown, they also broke in two guys named Mitch Marner and William Nylander, and they even had uh, Kasperi Kapanen, and they all played right wing. <laughs> and so they wound up uh, Hyman wound up switching to left wing out of necessity because they had all these good young right wingers and they had holes on the left side. So Hyman became a left winger. And anyway, they, uh, uh, the Oilers wound up getting those two guys who both have a, you know, reputation for hard work and, and, uh, 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 attention to detail. And so I, I'm happy to see him there for now. I'm not surprised. I do think we're going to see a lot of mixing, mix and matching, with the same six players. I think these are the six. Yep. When the team is healthy, this is going to be the first two lines. But uh, there's Agreed. lots of different options of how you can go about deploying them, which is uh, which is uh, uh, going to be fun to follow as the, as the season goes on. Okay, so now we get down to the, to the third and fourth lines. We have uh, Warren Fogle uh, with Lane Peterson and Derek Ryan. And I will stress this is in the absence of Ryan McLeod, who did not participate in the skate and might uh, miss the first few days, apparently, uh, with some kind of minor physical issue. Sounds like a muscle pull. Yeah, something like that. And then uh, Dylan Holloway uh, and Matthias Janmark on a line with uh, Brandon Sutter, the uh, PTO, uh, 34-year-old uh, veteran, Uh lining up for now in the middle of the fourth line, which is, I think, sort of a, the Ken Holland's dream of how where he might be when the season starts. But for now, he, like Peterson, and like the guy underneath him, well, I might as well get to the fifth line, too. There's only one more. Uh, Adam Ernie, another PTO, uh, and Raphael Lavoie on the fifth line with Brad Malone at center. And I think it's pretty easy to conclude that if McLeod was there, Peterson would be on the fourth line, Sutter would be on the fifth, and Malone probably wouldn't be in that. He'd be in group two. Yeah. 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 So what what's your take on those uh, on third line and subsequent? 
Yeah, well, I'll, <laughs> I try to hold myself back a little bit because it's the first day of training camp. Yep. And if the coaches didn't try different things and examine different looks, mm-hmm. we would criticize them. So yep. I, I'm not going to be too hard on them out of the gate. It's day one. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, I think the play this year for the third line, unless something really tragic happens in camp, mm-hmm. would be for Ryan McLeod uh, to line up with Holloway and Fogel on the third yep. line. Uh, I, I project that's what it should be and what it could be. Um, I find it interesting that Dylan Holloway is yet again on a fourth line in quotes with Sutter and Yanmark. Um, I'll believe that Jay Woodcroft has, has turned his opinion on Dylan Holloway when Dylan Holloway is not on the fourth line. Um, right. But again, I, I, I preface this. It's day one. I'll cut him some slack, but I'm watching. <laughs> um, I agree with you. The, the, the Sutter-Peterson thing just shifts if McLeod is in the lineup. Right. Um, um, and look, Derek Ryan had a terrific season. Um, sure did. You know, um, part of him being up uh, uh, on that third right wing slot may well be, hey, you earned this, right? And right. I, I'll have no fault with the coaching staff. That's the reason why. I think we all project Derek Ryan, as much as we respect him, is going to be on the fourth line mm-hmm. this year. So, so those are those are my thoughts. I, th- I think Malone's going to start the year in the AHL. I, unless there's an injury, I think Ernie will probably sign a, sign a deal and start in the, in the AHL too. And uh, the, um, the jury is still out on Raphael Lavoie. Yeah, well, fifth line, uh, right wing with uh, Brad Malone is probably not where he envisioned starting with a PTO on his other side, but uh, there's lots of time for mixing and matching, and frankly, the lower down this list you are, the more games you're going to play in the next four or five days. Yes. The top guys are going to get pretty sheltered through uh, at least the first half of the preseason, I would have to imagine. Yeah, I'd uh, be surprised if Lawad doesn't doesn't play four or maybe even five preseason games. So, Well, okay. Well, you and I are on the same page because here's how I uh, had my projected roster uh, about a week ago that I've uh, included in a post. Kane with McDavid and Brown, check. Nugent Hopkins with Drysaddle and Hyman, check. Check. Holloway with McLeod and Fogle. Check. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, McLeod is out, and obviously they set up the lines of different. And I had Janmark and Ryan and X on the fourth line because, you know, it could be one of several players. The thing about Matthias Janmark and Derek Ryan is that they are so versatile that <laughs> their third guy could play any position. They could stick a left winger, right winger, center in there, and they could make it work. Because uh, yes. Yanmark, I think Yanmark plays all three positions, to be frank. And Ryan certainly is competent at center, fourth line center, or at right wing. So yep. uh, that's I, I envision those guys playing together, those two vets, Yanmark and Ryan, playing together quite a bit, frankly. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think we could agree that had he been healthy at the start of camp, you could have put Sam Gagne on that list as well with some of the mm-hmm. same attributes. But yep. he's probably going to be another three to four weeks before he gets up to speed, and will pro- I imagine we'll get some some AHL time first to get up to game speed. So, do you think they'll sign him, or do you think they'll give him the Jason Demare treatment and give him a extended PTO in the AHL while he works on it? 
Well, I'll separate what I wish from what I think will happen because uh, full disclosure, I'm a big Sam Gagne fan and always mm -hmm. will be for various mm -hmm. reasons. Um, yep. I think if the club is smart, they'll do exactly what they did with, with Damaris. I, I, I think that's prudent. Um, and I'd be surprised if they haven't, haven't said that to Sam right up front. I'm sure he knows exactly what the score is. Um, and, and I think the club just protects themselves by doing that. Right. You know, what if, what if the other hip just doesn't come around? He had double hip surgery. One's mm -hmm. fine. It's the other one that they're waiting. Oh, really? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. 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 He had two hip surgeries, four or five weeks apart. The first oh, okay. one is, is considered game ready. The other one isn't yet. Uh, okay. which is why they're slow playing him. Um, but what if, but what if it never comes around? Well, then you've wasted a contract on him. Right. Okay. Um, so I, I, I think it is smart to, to give him the Demers treatment until such time. Yeah. I, I also anticipate, frankly, Brandon Sutter might uh, qualify for that given his two and a half years away yeah. from the game. And, you know, the fact he had long COVID and, uh, you know, maybe he's, maybe he's well rested now. On the other hand, it could be that he comes back and he's like 20% slower or even 5% slower than he was before, you know, and can't keep up with the game anymore, which at 34 years old with a guy that was never exactly twinkle toes on skates, you know, that uh, yeah. uh, that's going to be an issue. So I anticipate with him, A, they want to see him and give him a long look in every chance. Uh, B, that that might include uh, time down in... Uh, in Bakersfield, and it may mm -hmm. be that uh, Jason Demerit, uh, you know, Brandon, we, we want to give you a shot, give you a running start, but you're going to need some time to do that. Here's a 25-game yeah. ATO, or PTO, I can't remember which they label it in the yeah. AHL. But it's a I think it actually is an ATO, I think you're right. It's too. a significantly different rule than what we yes. have in the NHL in terms of uh, PTOs, which is PTO can play exhibition games, but he can't play in the regular season until I have a contract. Yeah. Whereas in the in the AHL, the the ATO itself serves as a form of contract. So, uh, yeah, in I, fact, I they use both, it all the time for guys that are perfectly yeah. healthy, not just guys like him. So, right, and well, with both Gagne and Sutter, I think that's you know a possible outcome. And yeah. another possible outcome with Sutter is that you know, I mean, if it's clear that he's past it, he may well you know just retire. Or yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, step back, or or you know, they may just come to a decision to part company. I'd be surprised if he started the season with the big club, but you know, I wouldn't say it's there's no chance. But uh, to me, that's the third likeliest option. There was a stand-up interview done with him, like a dressing room interview today. Mm -hmm. He was very candid and, and open and honest and revealing, and I really respected mm -hmm. that about oh, good. him. Good, I watched that. Um, Thanks. Yeah, uh, and when, when you go and you listen to the detail, this poor guy could barely breathe for two years, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Holy. So from a human standpoint, as I listen to this interview, <sighs> the human in me is, is cheering for him to be able to do this, right? I really hope that he, all this is behind him and he can get up to speed and he can actually play NHL games again. Um, but when you listen to what he went through and how low it knocked him at one point, he had to he had to stop thinking about whether he could play in the NHL again and just focus on being a father. Oh. That's that's how deep and serious his health concerns were. So at his age, was never that fast, has had to go through this and has been away from NHL competition for two plus years. Man, that is a tall mountain to climb. And if he can climb it, mad respect. 
even mm-hmm. if he can't, I respect him trying. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm like you, while I'm cheering like hell for him, I'll believe that he's NHL ready when I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other aspect, I mean, last year when uh, Jason DeBear went down, one of the things that he did down there was uh, become a mentor to especially Mike Kesselring, who, of course, he got traded at the deadline as uh, in uh, the Bugstad deal. So there's no long-term benefit for the Oilers now. But at the time, it made a lot of sense to sort of have the, the two of them working together. Well, the Oilers have a right-shot center uh, destined for Bakersfield named Jaden Groove. And can you imagine, he was coached by Brent Sutter <laughs> these last four years in, in Red Deer. And now he's turning pro. Can you imagine a, a better mentor for him as a you know would be right shot defense first team oriented center than one of the Sutter clan? Yeah, and I'll go one further <laughs> and add to that. Um, I would not be surprised if Sam Gagne's career morphs from uh, from minor pro major pro player to um to somewhere in the oilers office yes uh, dealing in this area knowing the quality of the individual um that i think that is probably where he is ultimately ticketed for yeah yeah i I agree and i think it's a transition phase that he's going through right now and he's back in edmonton getting this you know last maybe last kick at the can i was frankly pleasantly surprised to see him play a full season in the nhl last year last couple of years i mean he's hung around longer than i thought at age 34 over a thousand games yeah yeah. Yeah. and he was never a a, you know he never had fast boots uh his quickest thing about sam has always been his brain well he's going to be able to continue to use that in whatever function (laughs) and uh i think uh uh Jeff Jackson bringing him in, uh, well, it shouldn't have been surprising. Uh, it, he was uh, literally uh, Jackson's first client. Yes. Uh, as uh, uh, when uh, Jackson went into the agency business. But moreover, uh, uh, Jeff worked with Sam's dad, Dave Gagne, uh, well-known long-term NHLer. Uh, and while Jeff was uh, in, in that uh, in that business, uh, Dave Gagne became something of a skills coach that worked directly with their uh, with their young clients to help up their skills and you know improve their chances of making the pro ranks. And I like that way of thinking. I like that you know agent working on the player skills. You know, it's yep. as long as they're not clashing with the team. You know, and and sort of doing complementary work. Great. And he did at a younger age. Well. Uh, at the same time, Dave Gagne apparently was a terrific skills coach, and I have every reason to think Sam Gagne would be the same. Agreed. And uh, I think that uh, you may see him as a roving skills instructor or something of that nature uh, in the relatively near future, but under the banner of Edmonton Oilers. Yep, I I agree. It's uh, <laughs> this is a this is a this is an agree with one another podcast. <laughs> We're seeing a lot of things through the same light today, Bruce. All right. So. Why don't we get to the defense? Were there any surprises well, yeah. to you with the way the defense lined up? Uh, well, Nurse Bouchard and Kulak CC is a bit of a bit of an eye opener. I mean, Broberg DeHarnay. Uh, there was some thought that Broberg might wind up with uh, with uh, Ekholm, 
but Eckholm's in the same boat as Ryan McLeod. He's out, and he yeah. has a uh, he has a hip flexor issue, uh, which he said if, this, if they were playing games for points, he would just fight through it. But they're not playing games for points. There's no reason whatsoever for him to go out and aggravate a hip flexor or something in September. Take your time, Matthias. You know, just get get up to 100%. You know, this is a guy that's, uh, you know, I mean, it's his first Oilers camp, so I'm sure it's an annoyance to him. But, you know, physical well-being is the best, uh, you know, the, the most important thing at this point in the season. So we don't know where they might go there. Broberg de Harnay is kind of predictable third pairing in the absence of the other. But you would have expected Nurse Cece Kulak-Bouchard, and we've got Nurse Bouchard, and Kulak CC, and I wonder what does that mean? Does that mean maybe they're thinking of going with uh, Nurse Bouchard and then Eckholm on the second pairing with CC or maybe with Broberg? CC Kulak could wind up being the third pairing. They're already playing together, mm-hmm. so you know that's that's uh, that's one scenario. So it's in the absence of Eckholm, though, it just leaves a sort of gaping hole that we can only speculate about is how are they what what do they have in mind for him and his fellow much younger Swede and I think that's the story of the defense in in, uh, uh, camp and early season is how are they going to deal with that issue well I think uh, your comment on Ekholm is my thinking as well I'm I'm wondering if Kulak and Cece isn't going to be the third pairing this year and I suspect we would agree. That would be a hell of a good third pairing. Very good third pairing. A very good NHL third pairing. Very that expensive of course one, is, but good. Yeah, but all predicated on whether Philip Broberg could could yeah. play, you know, second pairing right-hand D, mm-hmm. um, which is would be, yeah. A, yeah, right side D, right? Um, but there would be a lot of logic in, in marching him out there every night mm-hmm. alongside Matthias Ekholm. Um, mm-hmm. And Evan Bouchard, with the way he performed in the playoffs last year, you know, maybe the time has come to say, you're a first-pairing defenseman, kid. Go get him. Um, yeah, well, now, even he and Ekholm, last year some people argued that they were the first pairing. Yes. Yeah. And, I mean, in um, the playoffs, of course, Bouchard had almost all of his success on the power play. And so... Whether he was first or second pairing, it wasn't like he was crushing it at five on five. He was crushing it on the power play. That's where he got 15 yeah. of his 17 yeah. points. Yeah. Uh, he was, uh, uh, he, he's, I mean, he took massive leaps and bounds forward last year. And there's uh, every reason to expect that, you know, not only is he in the top four, but he really could be competing for that uh, top pairing, just depending on how they choose to uh, uh where they choose to put the pieces, he's going to be one of the four. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Kulak up on the second pairing thing could be a reward. He, he had a very good playoff again for the second mm-hmm. straight season for the Oilers. Yes. So there could be a nod there. Um, I think Ben Gleason probably is not up in team A if Ekholm is on the ice and healthy. Would you agree with right. that? 100%. Yeah. yeah. Nima well, I, also- I would expect... Gleason, although I think Gleason could end up playing games this year, mm-hmm. uh, but but probably only if we run into injuries. So, right. Yeah. Well, they got Gleason. They got Hofenmeyer. Uh, they've got Deneen that are all left shot D men down there that have been added in the last few months. Deneen came at the at the deadline as part of the Kesselring Bugstad deal. Uh, 
that came to Edmonton. The other two they signed in the summer, all lefties. Uh, but I think Kulak in the top four is there because Ekholm is not there. And yep. they had to move somebody up. And Kulak, I'd say, clearly is their number five. Or he was at the end of last year. Well, he moves into the, the job of the number five is be prepared to move into the top four the minute that someone's not available. So there he is already. Uh, and I think uh, if you put Ekholm in there, uh, it's just as you do with the forwards, right? You move everybody down. Leeson's the one who moves out. Uh, Nima Linen becomes the number eight. And, uh, you know, Ekholm is two, three, however you want it. One even, depending on how you want to slot yep. him. Uh, but definitely in the top four. And I mean, the definition of the order's top four this year will be the two pairings that include Nurse and Ekholm. Yeah. Well, you know, the that, other thing that I'll, I'll add is, you know, there are some people over the offseason who are saying, you've got to move Kulak because you can use that contract for something else. Well, mm-hmm. you can, sure. And I get that from a mathematical standpoint. But as soon as something as innocent as this injury to Ekholm happens, all of a sudden, this defense would look rather thin without Brett Kulak in that slot. Yeah, well, you know, you got a lot of a lot of number five D-men, I've noticed, are in the same range. Two, three million dollars. It's not just like the third pairing. You've got two guys making league minimum and they're holding their own out there. You might have one young guy on an ELC, uh, mm-hmm. as Oilers do with Broberg. Uh, but uh, you want to have an experienced guy for that very reason. He's a four five, right? He's the yep. five until he's the four because one of the four is out. And so you want a good, solid player there. And to me, Brett Kulak was all of that. His contract. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't mind his AAV. The 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 issue I have with the Kulak contract is his term, because uh, he's got three years to run on that thing, and also. Um, of course, Ekholm's got three years to run on his, and Nurse has got seven years to run on his, and that's three left defensemen tied up for a long term. Well, you only got three left defense positions, and now yeah. you got the young kid that you invested an eighth overall draft choice in four years ago, coming into sort of the the value last year of his ELC, and in a way, you got no place to put him on the left side. Yeah. At least you got to yeah. try and but- fit him in there somehow, somewhere else. But how does that saying go a bird in the hand? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's I, I agree with you on one hand, mm-hmm. but I, I already know what kind of an NHL player Brett Kulak is. I still mm-hmm. don't know uh, right. who Philip Broberg is, right? So Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's put it this way. If Kulak had one more year on his contract, to me that would be the ideal that you got that veteran there as a cushion. But that's not the case. Yeah. And it's what we have to deal with is that in order to keep these guys around, Holland used term and now we have a lot of guys on the team that have term. And uh, when, you know, this summer, we part of the price that was paid was they couldn't afford to pay some of the guys that played well in the bottom of the roster because there was literally no room. Everybody that, uh, uh, you know, all the top guys had term. So there was no, no cap space that became available. And with Kulak and with CC, you know, we're going to be waiting a while for those uh, contracts to run their course. And I'm not saying they're not good players. I'm saying the team doesn't have cap flexibility because they're too locked into too many contracts. Yeah. Although I think when it comes to defensemen and centermen, you can usually get a pretty good price back for, for either one. Ideally. 
Right. Yeah. yeah, he would have value. Uh, I think both yeah. would have value. Uh, but in the cap world, sometimes to, to move out cap, you actually have to pay just to move a salary. Even if the player is actually pretty good, sometimes you sometimes. have to pay. Yep. Yep. Anyway, so in a similar vein, they might be looking at Adam Ernie and saying, well, if he can do what Warren Fogel can do, and we can sign him for $2 million a year less and someone else wants Fogel, I mean, that's one way to one way to alleviate the situation. I don't think they're going to. I'm just saying it's that one way it could could work. Yeah, out. yeah. I agree with with bringing Ernie in because they, they did lose a little bit of size in the offseason, mm-hmm. and he, he kind of ticks that box. Yep. But you know what? He's never really been a full-time penalty killer. I, I, I like his forechecking ability, but he, he kind of – he strikes me as a tweener. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agreed. So, uh, what's left in goal? Skinner Campbell. Boy, that's a shocker. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes, <laughs> eh? <laughs> it's either Skinner Campbell or else it's Campbell Skinner, and I guess yeah. we're not going to know that for a while, but the default position for now is Skinner ended the year as number one, and he starts this year as number one, and uh, I suspect they'll give Campbell every chance to... Uh, to fight back, I wrote a post about the situation the other day and mentioned yes, that Campbell excellent. had already started to to right the ship in 2023. Trouble was his numbers in 2022, fall of 2022, were so bad that even with sort of an average second half, he still had crappy numbers on the year. And it's why I say the saying regression to the mean should actually be regression towards the mean. So just like if you have a 300 lifetime hitter in baseball and he's 200 at the all-star break and he goes back to normal in the second half and he winds up hitting 250, not 300, right? Because he was in such a big hole to begin with. Yep. So that's where uh, Campbell was last year. But in 2023, he was average. His goal saved against uh, average was like plus 0.2 or something. Whereas in uh 2022 it was minus 20 and 2021 it was plus 20 like he's been all over the map uh but the the red flag there was that even in 2023 when he was average it was like he was either really good or still really bad he had a nine game winning streak then he had a five game streak where he couldn't stop a puck and the Oilers kept losing five four and six five and stuff and Mm -hmm. then he bounced back down the stretch and won a few more games and uh uh made quite a few more saves so Obviously, they need the real Jack Campbell to start up, but uh, stand up. But I think the guy that ended last season was a lot better than the guy that they had in the in first half of last season. And uh, yes, and hopefully. from what I'm told, he's coming to camp this fall with a slightly different body composition, a little leaner, uh, uh, a little bit lighter, so uh, maybe a little bit quicker. Um, okay. So we'll see. So we'll see what kind of impact that has. Although I don't think anyone was questioning much of his physical ability I, I think it was uh i think it was how he how he managed the game upstairs was more right. of a question so yeah well he asked some of those questions of himself and he, he he's notorious for beating up on himself yeah and uh that's uh, so um, because he does that so much other people just kind of pick up on it reporters and so on and and uh i don't i don't think it helps so i'm hoping in addition to the coming leaner he's a bit meaner too you know and yep. sort of taking it out on other people as opposed to always wanting to absorb uh the blame himself yeah so and to, to your point even if he 
even if he rocks a, like a 905 or a 908 yeah. this year, that would mm-hmm. be that would be significant. <laughs> oh sure, well, right. So Oilers uh, can win with league average goaltending. I'm convinced indeed. of it. They need league yep. average goaltending because uh, they can outscore. And and Campbell, to his credit, he's very good at winning high scoring games. Mm-hmm. Right, and he's had a fantastic win-loss record, playing with first with Toronto, a high-scoring team, and then Edmonton, an even higher-scoring team. Yeah. And what was his, his record was just 69, 21, and 12, I think. So, I mean, just ridiculous. He was almost 75% points percentage, which is fantastic. Yeah. And yet yeah. people here are just shredding the guy, and not without reason. Uh, but you know what? I'm in a little bit in the Grant Fuhrer camp. I don't care what to say percentage mm-hmm. of goals against average. You come away with a dull and a smile on your face. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the right save at the right time. Um, uh-huh. Well, that's pretty That's pretty key for NHL goaltenders. Right on. So uh, let's now move on to the next subject, back in time. This is a long way back in time because we're talking about the Oilers uh, election selection uh, of two new members to the uh, still new Oilers Hall of Fame, the outer circle, if you will, of uh, of uh, Oilers uh, who didn't make the Hockey Hall of Fame but still absolutely deserve to be recognized in Edmonton. And the way they've done it is to not retire their numbers but to recognize them and and, uh, uh, and put them in that uh, uh, in that category of you know Oilers. Hall of Famers. Last year, of course, I mean, I think for the first few years, it's going to be hard to go wrong. Uh, uh, there's so many excellent candidates. Last year, they did not put a foot wrong when they selected Lee Fogelin and Ryan Smith. And I'd make the case they didn't put a foot wrong in 2023 either with the selection of Charlie Huddy and also of um, Doug Waite. And two guys from two different eras and two very, very different players, a defenseman, a high, a high scoring forward. Uh, and you, you know, you can do a little bit of slate of math and say, well, between them, you've got two guys that won five Stanley cups and led the team in scoring <laughs> seven times. Right. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, Huddy won the five cups and weight led the team in scoring <laughs> seven times, but they were both uh, uh, important players uh, Huddy more in a sort of a support complementary role, but excellent, excellent one for uh, many, many years, and 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 a contributor. You know, one of the magnificent seven who won the five cups here, and one who went from being undrafted in uh, the remarkable draft of 1979 and signed as a free agent to the Oilers. And he made it into the NHL in 1981. And there he remained Mm -hmm. until he retired as an assistant coach in 2022, (laughs) 40 years later. And he was in the NHL. He was, he lasted longer as a coach than he did as a player. And his playing career was 16, 17 years. I can't remember exactly. Anyway, it was, Long, long time. And, uh, and then he went on to become an assistant defense coach here in Edmonton with Craig McTavish, but he wound up serving four teams in all, uh, including the Winnipeg Jets for, for many years. Uh, but uh, uh, he and Waite were, uh, um, as I say, different different eras. And uh, Waite was from the next generation of guys who came in when they were clearing house on the original 
dynasty team once they couldn't afford those guys anymore. Once the exodus began, there was almost no choice but for them to continue moving expensive older players and bringing in young guys. Well, let's say they hit a home run there trading the brilliant Essa Tikkanen, who I think will himself wind up in the Oilers Hall of Fame uh, some not-too-distant future uh, in a one-for-one trade for Doug Waite. And it was a present for future kind of deal uh, in the manner of the very famous present for future deal uh, of uh, Joe Newendike for Jerome Ginla that Calgary pulled off where Dallas was going for the cup. And when they got it, Newendike won the, won the Conn Smythe. But in the meantime, Calgary had their best player for, you know, 15 years to come as their part of the deal. And both teams were very, very happy. Well, I would suggest both teams were pretty happy with who they got out of that Tikkanen for uh, for weight deal. And it was, a, you know, it was a real win for the Oilers. And, and, and weight became an absolute cornerstone of the little team that could, which was sort of the the uh, next generation good Oilers team. Not great, but real good. It was like a boom, bust, and echo. And they... They busted for about four years in the early 90s, and then the Echo was a pretty, pretty nice, entertaining team run on a shoestring budget for about a decade, and, and weight was a big piece of that. Well, you know, I think um, probably the next oiler to go up in the rafters in the Hall of Fame is probably still active. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so there was yes. a gap in there, you know, yeah, and, and yeah, and I think there's been a lot of debate for a long time about if another player before one of these active ones did go up in the rafters, who would it be? And I, I, I think the general consensus was the guy that was close, but not quite was Ryan Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, I argued to many people that right there with him um, was Charlie Huddy mm-hmm. um, because of his duration, his term with the team um, because of the five Stanley cups and because he was a hell of a good player, <laughs> you know, um, and I think some people just forget just how good of a two way defenseman he was. A lot of people say, well, you know, he kind of cleaned up the home and well, Paul Coffey roamed all over the place. Well, well, Charlie Huddy was no slouch with the puck either. Right. Um, and nope. so I think he and Smitty are two good examples of just and I mean, just miss being in the rafters. But a very logical selection this time around. I certainly support the Doug Waite selection too. My question back to you was, if you were picking the next two players to go in the Edmonton Oilers Hall of Fame, what two do you think you would pick? Oh, well, uh, the article that I never wrote this summer uh, (laughs) was about the two that I thought should go this year, and I was going to go with the uh, undrafted uh, free agent pair, uh, not a defense. Well, they were a defense pair actually in 1990 of Charlie Huddy and Randy Gregg. Mm. And I am uh, going to be an advocate for Gregg. It might take him a while, but uh, he's the last remaining member of the Magnificent Seven who won five cups in the city. Uh, and uh, definitely. Uh, high on the consideration list, let's put it that way. Um, so now Huddy is in uh, uh, with my blessing, and but Greg is still there on the list to select. And there are a number of good players, like say Esetikinen, uh from the 1980s. I think Dave Semenko would get lots of support. 
uh, for that specific honor. Uh, I mean, his record as a hockey player, you know, in terms of statistical results and so on, is a, a different level than, you know, the stars of the dynasty team. Uh, but he was, a, you know, a, a very much a, you know, one of the faces of that team. Uh, I like uh, a little bit more modern player. I mean, they obviously have to consider Al Shemsky. Yep. Uh, who was Oilers' best player for a number of years, and he didn't have a lot of help, and the team wasn't, you know, particularly great. But uh, it wasn't for uh, lack of uh, trying for Alish uh, Hemsky, and uh, uh, the hardest soft player I've ever seen. Some people accused him of being soft. Did you ever watch him go into the corner with Robin Regeer? Yeah. Did you ever see I him back him. down? I see him. Get I watched crushed. him a lot. <laughs> I I always thought he was terribly miscast by those few people. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh yeah, I like uh, I like Hemsky as a as a future uh, member of this group, but uh uh there are quite a few. I mean there there's uh uh, uh there's uh, uh, it's not just the dynasty era, but that's that's part so far they've done 180s guy, one later guy each of the two years, and I think we might see that pattern continue for a year or two, especially given that there's a few of the 80s boys that I think are on the selection committee, so that team's never yep. going to get overlooked. Uh, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> well, uh, I, I agree that Hemsky would have been on my list. So mm-hmm. I agree with that one. Uh, mm-hmm. Another player name that I'll put out there, Sean Horkoff. Yes, 100%. Captain of the hockey team, 796 mm-hmm. career games in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of uh, part of the, uh, of the last really good pre-McDavid team that we had. Um, yep, and, and, and Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say a fourth round draft pick who hit yep. out of the park and was a career overachiever. For all that he got, uh, uh, he got the overpaid salary um, nonsense that uh, that some of these guys have to put up with, and you know, he was uh, he earned his way up. He was, you know, he was a uh, uh, a big, big part of the 2006 team that mm-hmm. uh, uh, that went to the finals. Uh, I suspect you'll remember this. I know I do. Uh, Sean Horkoff with one second left in game five at Joe Lewis Arena, diving to block a shot with his face to protect a one goal lead. My son and I were at the clinching game in that series. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget well, that, it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the other name, and I've written about this, so you, mm-hmm. you'll have known it before. I believe that the great Bill Hunter um, yes. as a builder yeah. should be on this list. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The Oilers would have not been the Oilers. They would have been a glimmer in someone's eye had it not been for Bill. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think sometime, hopefully soon, uh, he gets his due in the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. for, for that. And, and really for the first four to five years that he shepherded the club through the WHA. So, Yeah, well, Bill does have his place in current Oiler lore in that – uh, and I'll take this as a compliment. Some would see it as a joke. The mascot of the Oilers is named Hunter, and he wears the significant number 72. <laughs> Not 79, 72, when the Oilers actually yeah. really started playing hockey. It didn't just suddenly yeah. come out of nowhere in 1979, folks. Yes. And Bill Hunter in 72 
was the absolute driving force that helped to get the league going and certainly was yes. a big part of the reason or the reason that the league had a team in Edmonton. So if if off-ice people do qualify for the Oilers Hall of Fame, uh, then maybe they should sort of have a third one that they put in who's not a player or something because there's a lot of players lined up but to me yeah. uh, bill hunter and joey moss are sort of two obvious mm. long-term uh you know connections with the team that go back a long long way and in the case of joey moss you know he, he lasted longer with the team than pretty much anybody i think yep yeah well put well put what an interesting conversation mm-hmm. yeah do you have a single memory of doug Waite or charlie huddy that uh comes to mind of a particular play or moment? No, I mean, I, I obviously vividly remember both guys guys mm-hmm. playing. I have clearer memories of Huddy for whatever yeah. reason. Um, you were a D-man, right? Uh, I was a defenseman, and so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I have a weak spot when it comes to <laughs> even, I would suggest, even in my game grades for the cult of hockey. Right. Uh, I, I, I grade like, I grade I like an old D-man. <laughs> So, I was a goalie, I, I, so I, always, I blame the demon. <laughs> see, there you go. <laughs> and and we were there. Really, you didn't stop that. <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, um, so so yeah, it's, I just uh, Char- Charlie Huddy, as I say, I often advocated for him for being up in the rafters uh, because I thought he was very underrated and, and yes. deserved greater praise than he'd get it, get from many corners, not including you and in that, of course. So. Well, he made the switch to the right side with uh, with no problem. I uh, use it to his advantage. I heard an interview with him yesterday, and he he said something which I've wondered for years uh, and thought to be true for years. Because to me, Huddy is is on the very short list of the finest I've ever seen at keeping the puck in at the attacking blue line. Yes. And he said that playing on his wrong side was a big advantage for that. Because when you're playing your wrong side, you can seal the boards with your body and have your stick out in the middle of the ice. With you trying to seal your strong side boards, your stick is almost in the way, and it's not a lot of help. Yep. And so it, that was uh, I was nice to hear him actually say that because that's a theory I've had for a long time. And he also said that walking the blue line, you're actually walking into the center with the puck on your forehand, is also an advantage. So, uh, and he did those things very well from the right side. But he was he, he was just such a, a, a foil for coffee you know he wasn't like coffee does all the offense and all he does is you know stand around and play play d he was a puck mover uh he could fire the puck from the point he was very good at you know getting it to coffee so he could lead one of his patented rushes up the ice well you got to get the puck from somewhere and it wasn't always you know grand or andy teeing it up behind the net Hmm. for paul to skate on it sometimes it was (laughs) sort of uh, the the remnants of some kind of defensive stand and the puck getting shot around into a good spot where coffee could win the race to it and take off and uh, Huddy was a, a strong uh, performer in that way and I just thought he was so versatile Kurt it was sort of he could do everything yep and you know he could hit he you know he was he was uh, 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 not a great defensive defenseman but a pretty darn good one and you know year after year I mean I know this is the Oilers but uh, Charlie Huddy uh, is uh, this is according to Hockey DV. It's plus minus his first full year when he scored 20 goals. He was plus 62 and led the league. I was just looking at this, yeah. His second year, plus 50. Third year, plus 50. Plus 50. Fourth <laughs> year, 30. Plus 30. Plus 27. Plus 23. Uh, 
year yeah. after year, you know, just hugely outscoring. And uh, and that doesn't, of course, include any credit for the power play, which he was a regular part on, plus minus just doesn't. Uh, that does All it does is hurt your plus minus for the odd time you give up a shorty, the way this stupid thing is designed. It's <laughs> not very well thought out, but... Uh, he was, you know, he was a big time outscorer. And of course, these were the orders. A lot of the team had gaudy pluses, but uh, Charlie was up near the top. And in fact, he still ranks third all time in plus in Stanley Cup playoffs for the years that they've measured it, which of course doesn't go back to the beginning. But uh, uh, he was, uh, uh, he played 139 playoff games and he was plus wow. 98. <laughs> is that all? You know, yeah, like almost <laughs> that's almost one a game. So, yeah. And as for Doug Waite, I mean, if some and I included this in my post. So, I mean, the goal he scored against Calgary Flames on Hockey Night in Canada that time when he became the Invisible Man or the Flat Man, when he turned sideways and he was just like mm-hmm. he he cut through a hole that wasn't there. Because uh, the way he, skated, he sort of turned sideways, back backwards, and sort of went between the defensemen and one quick deke and upstairs on the goalie, and it was just an unbelievable uh, individual effort. But I also remember the scrappiness of this player, and this time they played in San Jose after uh, Brian Marchman had been traded there, and Marchman took a big run at weight early in the game, knee on knee, weight went down, hurt. Ethan Morrow came up and fought uh, Marchment right away, and he got Morrow got the instigating penalty. Marchment got nothing for the knee, of course, and they each got five for fighting. And Wait went and limped off to the room, and everybody was concerned. And then six or seven minutes later, he came back out and onto the ice. And the first thing he did was make a beeline for Brian Marchment, took him down, <laughs> and. And they had, you know, set two on the ice with weight on top. And Mr. Referee on that occasion decided to give weight six penalties for 39 minutes. Uh, <laughs> what was it now? Slashing, instigating, fighting, misconduct, second misconduct, game misconduct. And Brian Marchman, zero mm. for, you know, usually you always see, even the guy, the unwilling guy gets two or five for just gets something, there. right? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it's not like Brian March was exactly unwilling, you know? <laughs> so that was, anyway, that was, that was a game. He got kicked out, of course. And then the, the way the team responded to that, killing the nine minute pe- penalty and scoring a shorty and, you know, coming out of that game with a point in a, you know, very, very tough bar in San Jose, the shark tank at that time in 2000, that was Waits last year here. And uh, he, you know, for a guy that was supposedly a skilled player, he just didn't take crap. And he, you know, he would stand up for himself. And I mean, and he, he wasn't a, little, a real he went a little, big guy, right? No, like, no, he, he was, was only 200 pounds, 5'11", 200. And, yeah. But he, uh, he was, he was feisty and would stand up for himself. And uh, I mean, he was definitely the aggressor here in the second incident but there was a reason for it. And, uh, you know, I, I I remember being completely enraged at the time that it happened when they, <laughs> they assessed the penalty. Like, what, 39 to zero with Marchman? Ah. Come on. <laughs> anyway, it was uh, uh, for that reason. When, I, when my blood gets boiling, I tend to remember those things 
longer. So I still remember that that uh, specific set of circumstances and uh, kind of admiring weight, you know, even though like he went overboard, but it sort of sort of went the hell with this. I ain't taking this from nobody. I, I played yeah. with you for years, mush. I know how tough <laughs> you are, and I don't care. I'm going after you because I yeah. didn't like how you hit me. Oh, dear. Okay, well, all right, so let's move on to uh, our last and uh, most uh, distant uh, topic in terms of how long ago it happened, which was the Penticton tournament, which came to a close way back on Monday, three days ago. So distant memory, and I, I have to say the Penticton tournament does tend to fade pretty fast once other things start happening. Especially when you have a winning NHL team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah and, yeah, and you have a, I think, a fairly weak uh, prospect team, or at least in theory. And my my takeaway from this tournament was I was pleasantly surprised by how well Edmonton played, and uh, that you know they went in the end one one and one in three games. I was expecting them to be zero and three with like twenty goals against or something. They had three eighteen year old goalies. They had four teenage defensemen, and they had a whole bunch of invites and a relatively small number of draft picks. And hardly any of them were high draft picks. And you know you looked around. Vancouver had four guys who played NHL games last year, mm-hmm. and Edmonton didn't have any of those. And uh, that was the one game that they did get beat. But, you know, they were, uh, I think if you did any sort of analysis on paper, how many draft picks, how many first round draft picks, you know, and how average age, all those things, they would have been fourth out of four. And yet they uh, uh, they held their own. And uh, a few players stood out. Now, name one for you, Kurt, that uh, you thought really caught your eye. Yeah, well, I'd say from an umbrella standpoint, I think one of the reasons why they showed so well at the tournament is their best players showed up and were their best players. Mm-hmm. You know, so I do think there's a bit of gap between all the invitees and their best prospects, but most yeah. of their best prospects prospects played quite quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, two guys caught my eye. The one guy in particular who I'm still thinking about is is Bo Aiki. Mm-hmm. Um, this kid looks like a player. Yeah. Um, not only is he a wonderful skater, not just fleet of foot, but he's got marvelous edges, great control, backward, forward, sideways. Man, when when you can skate like he can skate, you've got a shot. Uh, just a pleasant and fluid too, you know. Just a, just a beautiful skater. Big fan. Um, uh, but he can clearly shoot the puck. He appears to have very good vision on the ice. Moves the puck well. And particularly in the third game, when I thought he was out of gas a little bit, you know, because he played three out of the three games. Right. Um, um, but on the um, on, in game two and in game three, there's a number of times where I thought he played real, made really sharp defensive plays as well, um, mm-hmm. which leads me to believe that while I think he's primarily an offensive defenseman, it's not without defensive merit in his game. Um, and I remember kind of being not wowed, but not disappointed when he was, when he was selected. Uh, but watching him against, admittedly against other prospects, I got, boy, this kid can play. And he, and he really mm. got me quite excited. Yeah. me as well, uh, the skating of the, I think the scouts call it four way skating. I mm. can go forward, backward, uh, or, uh, move, uh, you know, laterally to the right or to the left. Yeah. Uh, ideally, 
be able to stitch those things together and sort of make these seamless moves where you're going backwards and all of a sudden with one step you're gone off to one side and then you're speeding up the he showed all of those kind of mm-hmm. kind of things in his uh, and some of those skills are ones that can be applied defensively right yes yeah, he's not a player that you might expect that's going to you know stand on the edge of the crease and and uh uh, you know, chop down big forwards on the other team. Uh, but what you can expect, I think, is him to disrupt a lot of plays before they get going and yep. or in the neutral zone, you know, before they even get in, just sort of get in there and and, and if not take possession of the puck, at least muddy the waters enough that they, they can't make a clean entry with it. Uh, yep. he's good and I think one of the understated gaps. defensive things in the game is, I agree with closing gaps, and I think one of the often understated things in the defensive game is retrievals. Mm-hmm. When you oh, can yeah. move and when you can turn like he can, mm-hmm. uh, it's way easier to defend, to defend when you get to the puck first. Yeah, and it's easier still when you get the puck out of your own end under control with a good pass or by leaving somebody in your vapor trail uh, on the way out. And so, that I mean, as an 18-year-old, we just got a teaser of that. Uh, but yeah. I think we saw um, sort of a, just an early warning of a guy with, with real NHL-level uh, skating chops and a game that he will be able to build around that. And yeah, so has, he, he was a very exciting player in this tournament. Yeah, and has at least one, probably two more years of junior, right, before he turns pro. So Yeah, well, he's, he, he, yeah, he, I mean, if he's good enough to make the NHL, I mean, he can theoretically make it this year. That's not going to happen. Or he can yeah. make it next year. But the soonest he could go to the AHL is in 2025, 20, 26. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got time to come to come along and, and – uh, uh, He's um, uh, and at this point an intriguing prospect who we will watch and track from a distance for uh, the next year or two or even three. Uh, but I'm pretty comfortable in in saying that I ranked him too low in our uh, uh, summer prospects rankings, and uh, next I year he'll be higher. I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Shame on us. Oh, well. <laughs> so that was the guy that caught my eye, and apparently you mm-hmm. too. Who else caught your eye? At, uh, yeah, at this is the best I've seen Carter, Carter Savoy uh, mm. since, uh, um, I mean, last year he got banged up even in this tournament, I think. We never really saw him play, and he had a tough year in the in the Bakersfield. He kept getting hurt, and when he did come back, you know, he was on the fourth line. He didn't get a lot of power play time, and, you know, he's an offensive player, and He's going to do his damage. Uh, He needs an offensive, proper offensive opportunity to show what he's got. Well, I thought he showed quite a bit in this tournament, not just uh, the shooting that he's famous for, which he did get one goal against uh, Vancouver. But I liked his passes, and I liked his passes in close to the net. Like he was, he was finding guys that were in danger spots. He made a a couple of a couple of beauties in. uh, uh, that Borgo, for whatever reason, couldn't finish, but he mm. sure set him up in, in front uh, two or three times. They were, they were together on a line with uh, Carl Berglund as the center. Berglund was a college free agent that the Oilers signed uh, last spring. So he's new and he's, you know, but the uh, Savoy and, and uh, t- uh, Borgo were both Borgo. Oilers draft picks that we've been tracking for a while. So, uh, Savoy impressed me with his uh, he, very slick 
and uh, mm-hmm. very confident with the puck on his stick. And uh, you know, he's uh, he's able to find and exploit gaps and uh, in the defense, you know, and, and lanes, not just gaps, but you know, create the lane and then zing the puck through it and onto the stick of his teammate. And he's got some real good offensive chops, and I'm sincerely, devoutly hoping that he will get the opportunity, A, to be healthy enough, and B, to, you know, really get a good hard look in the top six somehow on, on Bakersfield this year. And you mentioned Borgo. I, I liked him. I, I mm-hmm. liked his two-way game. Um, mm-hmm. I just thought he was a little snake-bitten, honestly, because mm-hmm. he was all yeah. around the pocket. So. Yeah. Good PKer, Borgo. I like yeah, his game right. on the four and five game. And he's around the, he seems to be around the puck a lot. So that'll probably give him a chance. You know, mm-hmm. if, yeah. if, you, if you're going to crack this lineup in the next two, three years, you're probably going to need to be a fourth line player. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, you want that range of skills. And mm-hmm. on the other side, the one guy that I was expecting way more out of than I saw, uh, and this player I like a lot, and I'm not quite sure what was going on in this tournament, Ty Tulio. I just didn't mm-hmm. think he had much of an impact. And I did not see the Calgary game, but the two games that I uh, observed and wrote about, uh, uh, you know, little things here and there, but nothing offensively, really. And I just thought in his second crack at this tournament, I was expecting a little bit more. So uh, here's a player. We'll see if he, how much of a look at it he gets at camp uh, this year. But the clock's ticking. You know, he's on the second year of his AHL deal. I like the player. I like a lot of what he brings. And I was just surprised I didn't see more of it in Penticton. It's usually those guys that have been there before one or two times that tend to show real well in that tournament. And at least to my eye, he didn't stand out. Righto. Can you still hear me, Bruce? Yes, I can. Okay, good. I can uh, still see the bottom of your low, face. So I, had oh, to, okay. I had to swap corners. <laughs> okay, well, we're just about at that point. I think where we've covered most of the most of the ground that uh, that we had uh, intended to cover. Oh, I can't let it go though without mentioning Max Wanner of uh, of the Oilers rookies. And here's a young man who's just turning pro now uh, this year, and will be a very intriguing player to watch from a distance down in Bakersfield on uh, uh, AHL TV. Uh, from time to time, and uh, uh, he's uh, he's got an interesting uh, set of skills. He's a big, big, big guy. Can play tough, uh, but I largely liked his uh, his presence uh, defensively. His ability to be in the right spot to close guys down, to lay on the body, and also just to be calm when the time was to be calm. You know, you don't always have to run into the corner after the puck. Holding your position and taking away the lane is often the best play you can do. And I, I liked just a lot of his positional play. And uh, he's got uh, uh, he's got some real upside, especially for a seventh-round draft pick. I know yeah, my friend... I like uh, the player, too. And I, okay. I also think that he has underrated hands and vision of the ice. And while I don't mm-hmm. think he'll, he'll... Well, he'll never be a power play quarterback. Right. But, you know, he, he'll he have enough offense that I don't think he'll be a, a liability in that mm-hmm. area. Uh, right. I agree with you. He's primarily a defender and a stout one, and I quite like him, too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I know my friend Bruce Kerlock, who's been doing prospect video analysis for Oilers Nation now, and he's he compared him to uh, Braden McNabb, a, you know, a young Braden McNabb of uh, Stanley Cup champions, Vegas uh, Golden Knights. Yeah, yeah, and that's a guy that you know he's been <laughs> kicking around for a long time with the Kings and then with the Golden Knights, and he's always kind of a thorn in the side to play against and just kept getting better and better and let's face it a seventh round pick you don't expect the guy to come in and just flat out make the nhl as soon as he turns pro it's going to take a while but he's moving in the right direction and he's a distinct player player of interest all right well let's leave it there kurt thank you again for uh for uh filling in for uh uh, for David, or for me, as the case may be, I'm filling in for David in a sense. But uh, anyway, uh, I enjoy our conversations always and uh, have again tonight. Yeah, we had a lot of ground to cover and it was enjoyable doing so. Always good to talk to you, Bruce. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Kurt. And thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>